Welcome to the NICE podcast. My name's Kate. And I'm Ben. And you're listening to the Newcastle Intensive Care Education Podcast. We're recording on a Wobbicle country in beautiful New South Wales, Australia. Welcome. Hello and welcome back to the NICE podcast. In today's episode, Kate and I welcome Jeanette Lacey to the podcast. Jeanette is an all-round nursing superstar and phenomenal patient advocate. After working in intensive care for many years, Jeanette started work as an end-of-life nurse practitioner, touching so many patients and families, often at one of the most challenging times in their lives. Recently, Jeanette has started work to help support the implementation of the New South Wales Voluntary Assisted Dying Bill, and she's here today to discuss some of the implications and complexities of voluntary assisted dying in the intensive care space. Welcome, Jeanette. Thanks very much for having me. Um, Before we dive into what voluntary assisted dying is and its implications for intensive care, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your professional background and how you became involved in voluntary assisted dying. So as you mentioned, I had a long history of working in intensive care and um, I loved intensive care. Uh, But what I loved the most about intensive care was actually looking after people who were at the end of their lives and uh, supporting the families in what was always a, most of the time, a crisis situation and, and a time for them that was unexpected and that they never thought would happen and was a terrible, terrible situation. And, uh, and I really loved that work, which led me into going and working in organ and tissue donation as well. So I, I spent some time working in that space. But what I really realised through that time and working as an ICU liaison nurse as well was that the thing that was really missing in our hospital and acute hospital environment was care of acutely dying people. And, um, and, and whilst our medical teams and, and all of our teams did an exceptional job of um, keeping people alive, when we recognised that they were dying, we often walked away and, uh, and families felt abandoned and families felt like they, um, that they'd been forgotten by the system and I really felt like that was something that I could make a difference to. So, um, so I left intensive care and organ donation with great sadness and, uh, and entered the world of acutely dying people in an acute care hospital, which um, which I absolutely adore and absolutely love. But I think the thing that I love about that is that I get to work with people again in crisis because for most of the people I meet, they didn't know that being admitted to an acute care hospital had a possible outcome of dying. Uh, so for many people, it's it's a surprise that that's what's happened to them and unexpected. Although the medical professionals would probably say, well, of course that was going to happen to them. But, but I think for the patients and for their families, it's completely unexpected and, and they're not really ready for it most of the time. Mm. So I spend a lot of time <clears throat> trying to build expectation around death and dying and, and what it might mean and what it might look like. And part of that is also making sure that options at end of life are explored, which I guess answers your question. Why am I working in the voluntary assisted dying space? Because it is now a legal option in New South Wales. And um, and that means that I, working in the end-of-life care space, need to be all over that. 
And so is that an extension of your existing position or have you stepped into a new role? I think that's yet to be established. Okay, interesting. Um, I think that um, in New South Wales there are potentially roles for nurse pra- there There are no roles under the legislation mm. for nurse practitioners. Uh, how that impacts on my role here within the hospital, I actually don't know the okay. answer. the answer to that. Uh, what I have been doing is actually working 0.5 in both jobs okay. for the last uh, eight, nine months. And, you know, anyone who's job shared before knows how much fun that is. <laughs> well, that kind of nicely segues on to, I guess, what is voluntary assisted dying? So the true definitions in, in New South Wales is that it's a option available to people who are over the age of 18 who meet certain residency requirements as Australian residents or permanent residents that are New South Wales residents or that there is the opportunity for an exemption to the New South Wales residency laws. They must have decision-making capacity throughout the process of voluntary assisted dying uh, and they must be acting voluntarily without pressure or duress and their wish for voluntary assisted dying must be enduring throughout that whole process. Um, so that's the criteria required yeah. for the patient. What are some of the logistical aspects around that? My, my reading around the subject tells me that there's three clinical staff involved in that process. So there are three roles that are actually defined by the legislation and, and those three roles are collectively called authorised practitioners. Two of them are only for medical practitioners who are specialists or who have been practising for more than 10 years as generalist trained um, physicians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have the role of coordinating and consulting practitioners, which in layman's language is they assess whether someone is eligible and fits those criteria that I just mentioned to you. They decide whether someone's actually eligible for voluntary assisted dying. and. The coordinating practitioner is the person who does all of the coordinating for that person and all of the paperwork that's uh, legislated and required by the Voluntary Assisted Dying Act, which is a considerable amount of paperwork. Mm. The consulting practitioner's job is to provide that second opinion about eligibility to, to to ensure that there's safeguards in place and that it's a robust process. Okay. And then the other one is the administering practitioner. And that's the person who may uh, be required if the patient elects to actually inject or um, administer the lethal medication that will bring about the person's death. That person doesn't can be a staff specialist as well, but also may have only practised for five years um, as a medical practitioner or could be a nurse practitioner or an overseas trained medical practitioner. But there's a few more details in there, but yeah, that's about it's it. A fair few. Yeah, it's complicated, right? Oh, we haven't got started yet, Ben. <laughs> okay, there's well, more. Tell me more. There's so much. Tell more. us more. Well, I think the challenging thing when when I think about what it looks like for for our hospital systems, it, it's complex in the obligations that healthcare workers have, and uh, and it's going to take us time just to learn what that is but also we've never done this before. So everything that I'm saying to you is is kind of a bit of guesswork mm. in, in many respects uh, because the reason I want to do this and the reason I got involved in this is because I want this to be seamless for our patients. This is their option. This is their choice. 
uh, and I want to make sure that we try to set up some processes in New South Wales and, and in our local health district that mean that our patients are safe and that they're not being thrown from pillar to post trying to find someone who can help them. So I've explained to you some of what those authorised practitioner roles are and there's only going to be uh, a small percentage of medical practitioners who choose to fill those roles. And and when I I say there is only going to be, we know that because other jurisdictions have gone before us Mm. and and we know that uh, that this is not work that everyone, A, wants to do, but B, has time to do. Um, because because it is complex and it is time consuming, and uh, and currently in Australia there's no MBS provider number for providing these services, so there's no funding to do it, and that may change in the coming years, but uh, at the moment there certainly isn't. So so for the people in other jurisdictions, unless they're in a paid position with a centralised service, they're doing this because they care about their patients and their patients want it, and they're doing it in their own time. So, so that's a, a challenging uh, start in the process. Um, and I think one of the big challenges is there are obligations under the Act for medical practitioners and for healthcare workers in general that they have to comply with under the law. And, and I think in, in my life as an end-of-life care nurse practitioner, I have been trying for eight years to teach people about the benefits of good communication, good end-of-life care, good palliative care, what all of those things can provide to people. And I'm staring down the barrel of, of 10 weeks to try and teach an entire health district mm-hmm. about this legislation, and that's tricky. So, so that's I, I worry about our patients and I worry about how they're going to get access to this. Mm-hmm. So the, um, the first request is the most challenging part of the Act, I think, for, for medical practitioners. So a true first request is made to a medical practitioner only in a medical consultation and it must be clear and unambiguous. And if a practitioner receives that request, then there's a whole list of things that they have to do with it. So if they're a conscientious objector, they say, I'm sorry, I can't help you. They don't have to provide the patient with any further detail or any further information, but they do have to document the request in the medical record. They do have to write that they refused and why. They do have to write if they provided information and they do have to fill out a form for the voluntary assisted dying portal. If they ask anyone else who's not an authorised practitioner under the Act, they also have to refuse. But because they're not a conscientious objector, they have to provide information to the patient and direct them to where they can get further help and then do all the other documentation that the conscientious objector has to do. And then if they are an authorised practitioner, then they can choose to accept or decline to take on the person's case as a coordinating practitioner based on their availability and their time constraints or or whether anything else is preventing them from doing that, Um, as well as providing with with the information and documenting in the records and doing the entry into the portal. So it's quite complicated. Mm. Um, It's not... A simple process, and and we have lots of medical practitioners who who won't know that information, and, and won't know that process, and and so for me that's one of the most complicated parts of the act, because uh, once you if you're an authorised practitioner and you can accept that request, you've done a whole lot of training that means you know what to do next, but the other ninety eight percent of the population have not done any of that. 
So that's a starting point. Yeah, wow. How's that for you, Ben? That's amazing. Mm. I'm I'm learning lots at the same time. (laughs) Like this is part of my education towards it and understanding, you know, what we're going to do. I guess moving on from that, my next question is, what does that look like for intensive care? A lot of our patients don't have capacity to make that decision and therefore would be ineligible in my understanding of the law. That's correct. For voluntary assisted dying. But many of our patients do retain capacity. Um, I'm thinking of many examples in my head, but perhaps, you know, common one would be a patient with a tracheostomy dependent on a ventilator, but fully conscious and able to make that decision themselves. So I'm interested to explore what does that look like with your understanding and much better knowledge than I have, or what is that going to look like for us working in the critical care space? Look, I think that uh, voluntary assisted dying is probably going to be available for some intensive care patients. And when I think about voluntary assisted dying, the eligibility, most important eligibility, which I failed to mention at the beginning, so when you cut and paste this bit in, (laughs) you can sort that out. But the most important eligibility part of voluntary assisted dying is that the person has a disease, illness or medical condition that means that they will die within six months or within 12 months for a neurodegenerative disease. So there are many patients in intensive care, as you know, who would fit that criteria, but it's the decision-making capacity part that's going to affect mm. your intensive care patients. So the... I think that there will be a select number of patients in intensive care who may have the opportunity to consider voluntary assisted dying. All people who are eligible are going to die, we think, within six months. And I guess what those people are doing is probably choosing to skip the terminal phase of their disease. That, that's really what what they're controlling, I guess. And we've all met people with lung cancer who might say they don't want to suffocate to death or um, with heart failure who are filling up with liquid who say they don't want to drown in those secretions. And, and I understand why people might want to skip that, that phase of disease. The same as in intensive care, if I had a trachea and I was ventilator dependent and we all, and I said I no longer wanted to receive that ventilation, I'd be pretty terrified about what the terminal phase of that process would look like for me knowing, like I know in ICU, you've probably tried some weaning strategies, they probably haven't worked, the person's got distressed and felt breathless and felt frightened. And if you knew that you could skip that phase, I think that's why people would do it. Um, The same as potentially someone who's on dialysis three times a week. You know, if they knew that they could stop the dialysis and have an injection that stopped them going through the terminal phase of fluid buildup or getting confused with toxic buildup, you, you might choose that option. Many people won't, but there's some circumstances where we know that taking away some of those treatments are going to make people die faster. But then I guess we get into that conversation about what's the difference between withdrawal of cardiorespiratory support or life-sustaining treatments and voluntary assisted dying. And I really think that that's about um, modes and mechanisms, I guess. So, so when we have someone who's on life support treatments and we have a medical consensus that a person has an irreversible condition or has made it very clear that they don't want um, 
to have those life-sustaining treatments anymore, so they're about their values and wishes. Or when we have a family who tells us that mum would hate this and wouldn't want any of these treatments, then we talk about taking those treatments away. But we don't actually know whether that person's going to live for an hour or a day or two weeks because what we are doing is taking away something that's boosting someone up and then allowing nature to do its work. And dying really can take most people two weeks, I guess. You know, in normal death and dying, we see it's about a two-week process and we usually get involved in the health system somewhere along that trajectory. And if you ask good questions, you might find that the person's maybe been dying at home for a week already before they come into hospital. Um, so, so we will have some people who are, who are wanting to withdraw from life-sustaining treatment and allow nature to do its thing and, and, might, uh, and that might be a patient-guided decision or it might be a family-guided decision with medical consensus that this is probably the, a reasonable option based on their values and wishes. Some of those people could choose voluntary assisted dying if they have decision-making capacity, but most of them won't. Mm. Uh, we, we know that voluntary assisted dying accounts for about 2% of all deaths. Maximum is what we're guessing. Um, in Victoria, it's been 0.6, Western Australia 1.1. Queensland anecdotally is saying it's a bit higher than that. We're working on modelling of 1.5 to 2% of all deaths. Okay. The Canadian models show about the same thing as well. So, so we're thinking maximum 2% of all deaths. So 98% of people are going to go through those processes as they always have and, and will need good palliative and end-of-life care to get through those processes. Um, I'm not sure if I answered that question very well at all. but I think is probably more reflective for me of how complex this looks in intensive care if we're talking a very small number of patients. It's not going to be something that people are particularly familiar with, mm. not something that we're going to come across as critical care practitioners very often. Um, I suspect that probably adds more complexity to the problem rather than less. Look, I think it really does, and, and I'm often brought back to my days of intensive care organ donation. Uh, it reminds me very much of how I felt in those initial days of DCD donation as well and the complexities of trying to get it right for the people. Um, and, and again, I think, I think you're right. I think there's not going to be very many people who have decision-making capacity to be able to consistently and enduringly get through that in an intensive care unit purely by the nature of the, the place in which we work. Uh, and the ones that we do will be few and far between. And so for me, that's one of the reasons that we are suggesting in our health district that we have a, a specialist service that can come in and support that uh, because even the legislation is so complicated. You mm. just want to make sure you get that bit of it right for the yep. patient and mm. for their families and that you don't make a clerical error that's going to cause, you know, things not to not to go as people want it. Um, you know, I, I was talking with someone just last week about intensive care and about the challenges of um, of people saying, oh, it's the same as removing a ventilator. Or, But I really don't think it is. I really don't think it's the same because, you know, when we remove a ventilator, we allow nature to do what nature does. Mm -hmm. And this is different. This is, this is hastening that. 
so that people miss that terminal stage. I don't have a problem with it because I've seen enough and, and we all have, I think, to, to know that sometimes the terminal stage of a disease is not, it's not what, it, what you would want for yourself or for your loved one. Um, and watching people die slowly over two weeks can be quite heartbreaking. And if we can prevent that suffering and if people have that opportunity to do that, then, then I'm all for supporting that. But um, it's a tricky space. Mm. I think you make a really good point. What I foresee for our families is some confusion when we go into those end-of-life discussions about withdrawing life-sustaining treatment. Yeah. Like we have often in ICU, these, these discussions are very common. I foresee there being some challenges with our families being able to decipher the difference between voluntary assisted dying and removing life-sustaining treatment and transitioning to palliative care. I do not doubt that for one second at all, okay? I think that um, withdrawing life-sustaining treatment is very hard for families to understand anyway. Mm. Um, However, I would also say to you that probably, I mean, I don't know in ICU, I can't can't remember that much, but I, I think on a weekly basis people say to me, why do you do this? Why don't we have euthanasia? This should not be allowed to happen. You know, I think our community, I think as the, the more I am in this space, the more I think our community knows this. And, our, I mean, our, our community drove this mm. change. Mm. Um, and, and our community has been saying to me for years, you wouldn't do this to anyone that you loved or people say things like you wouldn't do this to your dog mm-hmm. and um and and our community thinks this is what happens and now we're going to have a case where it does happen and we have to explain to our community why it's different but also and more importantly I think and again one of the reasons that I first put up my hand to get involved in this space is I was really worried about the population who cannot access this, which is our intensive care patients Mm -hmm. who don't have decision-making capacity. It's our dementia patients who don't have decision-making capacity. It's, um, it's, it's all those people who, who predicting death is too difficult or we can't be sure about the trajectory of an illness. Um, it, I really worry about the anger that our health force is going to face in the coming months and years when people find out that they're not eligible mm. for voluntary assisted dying. So that was one of the other reasons because, as I said, people ask me weekly at least, can't we just have euthanasia? Can't you just give me that magic injection? Can't you just make this be over for me? And the answer is no. But in some cases in the future maybe the answer will be yes. Mm. Um, and, and those people, we need to be able to sure that, be sure that they have access to, to what they need. Mm. There are going to be a lot of people that don't fit the mould of the eligibility criteria. Mm. How do you think that's going to bring around moral distress for the health professionals that are involved in voluntary assisted dying? So controversially, Kate, I think that there will be less moral distress with voluntary assisted dying than there will be in what we see at the moment with uh, people 
having long, prolonged deaths. Mm. Um, you know, in working in this space, lots of people have said to me that we need to provide greater wellbeing supports for staff. We need to ensure that people exposed to voluntary assisted dying have extra supervision and extra counselling and extra support services available and that the families are going to need to have extra support services and and wellbeing and bereavement supports. And the evidence coming out of places such as Canada tells us that those families involved in voluntary assisted dying, whilst some people feel saddened that someone chose to leave them earlier, the deaths that they experience are nicer, Mm. more peaceful, more controlled, and provide a real opportunity for goodbyes and, and quality goodbyes because the timing is known. Unlike many of the people that we see in intensive care units where suddenly someone's ability to say goodbye is lost Mm. or someone who just dies at home on the side of the road, you never get to say goodbye to those people. So so in terms of moral distress, I I think that there's, there's pros and cons for both. But my argument to anyone who tells me that staff exposed to voluntary assisted dying need more support Mm. is that we have an amazing opportunity with the introduction of voluntary assisted dying to improve the support for all staff working in the death and dying space um, because you cannot tell me I'm, I'm at any stage that being with someone who has a life-limiting disease who's made a choice to skip the terminal phase, you cannot tell me that that is more traumatic than resuscitating a three-year-old who's been in a swimming pool or someone Mm -hmm. who's had catastrophic burns or multi-trauma accidents. The trauma, the vicarious trauma that intensive care, emergency staff, people having head and neck cancers that bleed out, like those terrible things that we see in the death and dying space, we don't have great support around that Mm. for any of our staff who do that on a daily basis. So yes, voluntary assisted dying will challenge some of our sensation around, oh, they chose to do this when they were well, I say in inverted commas, they're not well. The only reason they're choosing to do this is because they have a terminal disease that's going to cause their death. So, you know, the wellness and the wellbeing thing, the people I'm most worried about in this space are the administering practitioners, because if as we've experienced in other states, there are few people willing to do that job, then that job falls to few and those people are constantly uh, faced with the um, prospect of administering a fatal dose of medication. So um, I've heard and, and anecdotally people tell me that if they start that coordination process with someone that they want to finish it because it's an important part of the process and. And I, I heard someone speaking recently who said, you know, you never enter the room of someone who's having voluntary assisted dying who's disappointed to see you. You know, they're like, great, you're here. This is what I've been waiting mm. for. This is my day. This is my time. I've chosen this and I and I want to do this. And that each one of those spaces is is um, a unique space. And and yes, there's sadness. There's there's always sadness, but we we know that. Because mm. sad death is sad. We're losing someone that we love and, and that makes us sad. But but the person who's going through with it is generally pretty happy that this is their day. And for the practitioner, I think that maybe makes things a bit easier. 
Mm. But but I want to make sure that we've got those safety mechanisms around our administering practitioners. That's a beautiful perspective. Yeah. It, can we look at the other side of the coin for a second? Please do. So I worry about our patients who feel that their quality of life is really poor, but they don't fit the eligibility criteria and the distress that that brings for our patients, their families, it's staff who have to say, I'm sorry, but you don't fit the eligibility criteria. It's terrible. Mm. They're the ones I, that's that's why I started this because that's what I was most worried about because in my daily life, no one that I look after would be able to go through this process. Mm. So, so there's no one in my normal referral pathway for, for people that I look after, the acutely dying patient, who would be able to fit the decision-making capacity and have enough time to go through the process mm. for voluntary assisted dying. So, um, so I think that's a real problem. And what are we putting in place about that? Not much. Mm. So, so what we're saying is that those people should receive normal palliative and end-of-life care supports and the normal support structures in the systems in which they work. So for people with motor neuron disease, for example, it would be the support of their multidisciplinary mm. team and it would be the support of Motor um, Neuron Disease Australia and, and those, those support and counselling services that are already in place. Cancer, Cancer Council, um, you know, their oncology teams, their psychology teams. We, most people, the majority of people uh, are probably not going to fit this criteria. Mm. And I see the intensive care staff often in moral distress around yep. what we're doing to our patients and um, the care that is provided. And I think that there can be an element of moral distress coming our way when we have to tell our intensive care families and patients, but mainly families that their loved one doesn't fit the criteria, yeah. especially if treatment is going to continue. So I think about young traumatic brain injuries, for example, yeah. who um, potentially have poor outcomes that may lead to a poor quality of life, yeah. but we continue to progress them down the brain injury pathway from a recovery point of view. And our families say to us, well, if we get 12 months down the track and we're not happy with their outcomes, will we be able to look at voluntary assisted dying? So the answer to that is always going to be no, even mm-hmm. from day one. And, um, and I guess, you know, I think we spend a lot of time in, in healthcare telling people they can't have stuff. Mm, we do. And, and this, is another, this is another one of those. And is it going to cause moral distress? Look, potentially. I can't tell you that it's not mm. the same as I can't tell you that the patient you're going to admit tomorrow is not going to cause enormous amounts of moral distress on your ward. And yeah. and we've all worked together on these patients who have caused ward, you know, staff, wards, medical teams, legal officers, you know, all sorts of people, moral distress. Um, you know, there are people who can't become organ donors because they're, they have a reason that excludes them from that. There are people that can't have dialysis because they're too cardiovascularly unstable. Um, there are people who cannot have voluntary assisted dying because they do not have decision-making capacity. And and that's that's the law and that's all we've got. So, you know, this is an enormous change for medicine and for healthcare, the thought that we would actually hasten a death. Mm. Um, 
which is different to withdrawal of cardiorespiratory support when it's a futile or irreversible condition. Um, we will have moral distress, but I don't think it's going to be moral distress because voluntary assisted dying occurs. I think it's going to be moral distress because it can't occur. Yeah. Um, and I could be wrong. I'm probably wrong. Maybe you're not. Who knows? Uh, before we wrap this up, I'm really interested to hear your perspective on whether you think there's any cultural or spiritual barriers to voluntary assisted dying. And again, I'm thinking particularly within our intensive care unit. Uh, look, that's, I think there absolutely is. And, and many religions would tell you that you cannot, you cannot do this. Mm -hmm. uh, and many cultures would tell you that it would be the wrong thing to do as well. Again, what I would say about that uh, is if we don't ask the individual what they want, uh, every perspective culturally, religiously, spiritually is different. And um, you probably don't have time for my little story, but I've got a great story. Do you want to hear it? I'd love to. So many years ago when I worked in organ donation, I, I love telling this story because it shows how, how silly people can be, me being the prime example. But many years ago I went to an organ donation conference and they presented a case of a Buddhist Vietnamese brain-dead person who um, donated their organs. But it was very important to the family that they had rice put underneath their tongue and at the time of cross-clamp in the operating theatres that they pulled on the hair of the person to release their spirit. And I thought that is very cool. You know, what a great cultural thing to be able to, a, provide for the family, but that's, that's cool. Mm. Great. So I come back to work and literally the next week I get a Vietnamese Buddhist person who's brain dead and I thought to myself, I am so all over this. <laughs> and I got some rice and I'm ready to go. And I said to the family, is there anything spiritually or religiously that you, that you need? And they said, oh, well, what, do you, what do you mean? I said, oh, well, some people like to sing and some people like to put rice under the tongue, for example, or pull the hair. You know, there's, there's lots of different things that cultural groups or, or religious groups might find important, but given that you're Vietnamese and Buddhist, I just wondered if there was anything that would be important for you. And they said, oh, well, we better speak to our uncle because we're not really sure about that. And I said, well, just get back to me. And I thought, I'm ready. And literally they came back and they said, we've had a chat with uncle and he's told us what we need to do. And I said, great. Tell me what I need to do. And they said, could you play the theme from the Titanic? <laughs> and I said, sure, but is there anything else? And they said, oh, no, that's, that's it. That's all we want. And, and I think all of our healthcare and all of our organ donation and all of our voluntary assisted dying and all of the things we do will have everyone has different thoughts and everyone has different perspectives and everyone we come across in health has things that might be okay for one culture and not okay for another or okay within some parts of the Catholic Church and not okay in other parts of the Catholic Church. And our job as clinicians is to ask a family mm. what is important, what is acceptable, what it is that you need and how we can deliver it. And they will all have different opinions. Um, and our job is to support that. But this is a legal option in our state. People who live in our state have the right to choose it if they are eligible for it and, and 
Ministry of Health, you know, have certainly worked very hard at engaging with all of our culturally and linguistically diverse communities, religious groups, Aboriginal communities, to ensure that we try to have a holistic model that's going to work for people. Um, but the only way to really deliver individualised healthcare is to ask people what they want. What a beautiful note to end on. Mm. Jeanette, thank you so much for coming and talking to us today. It's you are been very fascinating. Um, Thanks for having I've me. I've learned lots. Um, and there's so much more to talk about. We'll have to get you back again I could soon. Talk for hours. Come September <laughs> when you've got some lived experience of what this is like once it comes into play. Yes, I'd love to. That'd be great. Thank you so much. Thank you.